0: This hearing will come to order. Uh, i like to welcome everyone first to the first hearing uh, of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, Subcommittee on East Asia of the Pacific International Cybersecurity Policy. Uh, glad to be participating again in this uh, Congress with my good friend and ranking member, Senator Markey. Uh, During the 115th Congress, our subcommittee was the most active subcommittee on the Foreign Relations Committee, holding uh, nearly a dozen hearings and uh, really guided us uh, into um, uh, our our legislation on the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, a a generational achievement for U.S. policy in the Indo-Pacific. I sincerely hope that we can keep this subcommittee uh, bipartisan and productive in this Congress as well as it has been. Uh, We're at a real inflection point in our policy toward North Korea. At the outset, we should commend the Trump administration for moving beyond press release diplomacy in a genuine attempt to resolve a very serious national security issue that has bedeviled multiple administrations, both Democrat and Republican alike. But dealing with Kim Jong-un and the Kim family has been one series of rope dopes Deception is certainly a key to the strategy that they have led for generations. Our team, led by Secretary Pompeo and Special Representative Steve Began, deserve major credit for attempting to move the ball forward. Unfortunately, despite the pomp and circumstance, um, commemorative coins, uh, primetime TV coverage, the summit in Singapore and most recently in Hanoi have not moved us any closer to the goal enshrined in U.S. and international law. The complete, verifiable and irreversible dismantlement, denuclearization of North Korea's illicit nuclear missile chemical biological and radiological weapons programs. While there has been no missile or nuclear testing for 15 months, that is a very good thing, North Korea still remains a nuclear threat to the United States and our allies. This incontrovertible fact was most recently confirmed by the administration's own 2019 Worldwide Threat Assessment, released by the Director of National Intelligence on January 29th. The summit pageantry has also not resulted in any significant changes in North Korea's atrocious human rights record. For the Kim regime, it's a time of choosing continue the failed game plan of father and grandfather, or open a new chapter of opportunity. This is where we are unfortunately falling short. But make no mistake, the blame for the lack of progress lies squarely with Pyongyang. So where do we go from here? We must always remember that the goal of any negotiations with Pyongyang must must only be to bring the regime into compliance with its international obligations. No more, no less. This is also the United States law, as enshrined by the North Korea Policy Enhancement Act and the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act. Until such time as the regime chooses to comply, we must pursue the policy of maximum pressure, including full sanctions enforcement, robust military posture, and regime isolation in coordination with our allies and partners around the globe. North Korea's enablers must recognize the destabilizing effect and proliferation risk of a nuclear North Korea. Maximum pressure means sanctioning North Korea's enablers. Strategic patience failed. We must not repeat it. That should be our message both to the administration and especially to our friends in Seoul who seem especially eager to advance the cause of inter-Korean cooperation without a tangible change in behavior from Pyongyang. To examine these and other questions, we've assembled an excellent panel of witnesses today. I look forward to hearing from you both, but I'll first turn to Senator Markey for his comments. Thank you,
1: Mr. Chairman, very much, and thank you for convening this hearing and your continued willingness to focus on the challenges posed by North Korea, and I want to thank our witnesses as well for your willingness to participate. You both are experts with extensive governmental experience, and I am glad you are here to help us shed some light on what American policy towards North Korea should be, and I look forward to learning from both of you. At the same time, <clears throat> it must be said we still need to have an open hearing with government witnesses to discuss the administration's strategy for denuclearizing North Korea. I wanna thank the chairman for trying to secure those witnesses, and I urge the Trump administration to make them available so that the American people can hear firsthand about what objectives our negotiators are trying to achieve and how they are going about achieving them. After all, a fundamental component of a transparent American government is public debate. Congress has an obligation to ask for administration witnesses and the executive branch has an obligation to testify. The American people deserve nothing less. Although President Trump's special representative for North Korea, Steve Biegun, gave a classified briefing to members following the Hanoi summit, there has been very little congressional interaction before or since. History shows us that diplomacy with North Korea falters without clear and regular communication between the executive and legislative branches. Now the topic of today's hearing is North Korea's policy after the Hanoi summit, but determining the future policy direction requires us to understand how we got here. To be clear, Kim Jong-un, a third-generation dictator, is to blame for flouting international condemnation by drastically expanding his nuclear weapons capabilities, bringing the threat to America's door. He has abused the North Korean population almost beyond comprehension and engages in every type of illegal and destabilizing activity. But US policy matters as well. Upon taking office, President Trump engaged in a war of words with Kim Jong-un that unnecessarily risked actual war on the peninsula. Unsurprisingly, taunts of fire and fury did not succeed in lowering the nuclear threat from North Korea. The bluster did not yield results. Kim Jong-un did not capitulate. Thankfully, the president turned away from the military threats, perhaps under the mistaken belief that they were working, and towards engagement. As a proponent of diplomacy and an observer of the U.S.-North Korean nuclear negotiation history, I believe his unorthodox approach of leader-level summits was worth trying. But to have a chance of succeeding, we, at the very least, needed robust working-level negotiations with empowered American diplomats, along with comprehensive and sustained sanctions enforcement. Unfortunately, we have not had any of these components. American engagement was too little, too late, and the president's itchy Twitter finger undermined our diplomats at every turn. Why is it, for example, that Kim Jong-un appeared to believe that he could get a better deal from President Trump than he could through working-level talks? President Trump's fawning about being a love sent the signal to Kim that the U.S. president might be willing to give significant concessions to North Korea without meaningful steps towards denuclearization. Although I am relieved that President Trump did not give away the store in Hanoi, negotiations that are well-planned and strategic must continue. And while we need to continue to analyze the summit's outcome, we need to plot the course forward. And there are many unanswered questions. Steve Began said that, quote, we are not going to do denuclearization incrementally. So, then, how is the administration going to achieve North Korean denuclearization at all, given the, unlike, the unlikelihood of a major deal up front? How is the administration going to get back to the table? How is the administration going to ensure that China, Russia, and other enablers of North Korea's bad behavior will fully enforce existing sanctions, especially when the president seems intent on easing pressure? And what message does it send to the rest of the world if we don't prioritize sanctions enforcement? What would be the implications on the global nonproliferation regime? Has the Trump administration sufficiently raised human rights issues with the North Koreans? I am eager to hear from our expert witnesses today on these and other uh, questions. Because although I am extremely skeptical that Kim Jong-un is willing to abandon his nuclear weapons program, we must continue to pursue diplomacy, which is the only solution to dealing with North Korea. And I very much hope that the administration, with its ham-handed approach to date, has not squandered a rare, rare opportunity to make progress. So I thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I look forward to exploring all of those issues with our expert panel.
0: Thank you, Senator Markey. Our first witness is Dr. Victor Cha, who is a Senior Advisor and Korea Chair at the Center for Strategic International Studies, CSIS. From 2004 to 2007, Dr. Cha served as Director for Asian Affairs at the National Security Council, where he was responsible primarily for Japan and Korean Peninsula, Australia, New Zealand, and Pacific Island Nation Affairs. He was also the deputy head of the delegation for the United States at the six-party talks in Beijing and received two outstanding service commendations during his tenure at the National Security Council. Dr. Shaw is no stranger to this committee, uh, whether you like it or not, the subcommittee, uh, having testified here both in the 115th Congress and in the 114th Congress as well. Uh, welcome back, Dr. Shaw. Thank you very much for your service and being here today. Uh, of course, our next witness, uh, I'll introduce you both right now and then we'll uh, start with Dr. Shaw, uh, is uh, Ms. Kelly Magmus, Magsiman, who is Vice President for National Security and International Policy at the Center for American Progress. Previously, she was the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Asian and Pacific Security Affairs and also performed the duties of Assistant Secretary of Defense, where she was responsible for <clears throat> defense and security policy for all of Asia and served as Principal Advisor to the Secretary of Defense. Uh, prior to her tenure at the Pentagon, she served on the National Security Council staff for two presidents and four National Security Advisors. Uh, welcome, Ms. Maximen, and thank you very much for your service as well. Uh, Dr. Chah will begin with your testimony.
2: Uh, Thank you, Chairman Gardner, Ranking Member Markey. It's a pleasure to be with you to discuss options for U.S. policy on North Korea after the second summit. There were high expectations at the second meeting in Vietnam last month after the absence of progress on denuclearization commitments made in Singapore the previous summer. Not only were the two leaders unable to deliver an agreement with tangible steps on denuclearization, they also dispensed with a joint statement signing – And in a solo press statement, the president said that sometimes, quote, you have to walk. This was just one of those times, unquote. Nevertheless, the Hanoi summit has left us with no clear diplomatic road ahead on this very challenging security problem, a trail of puzzled allies in Asia, and a promise of no more made-for-TV summits, at least for the foreseeable future. The question is, where do we go from here? Um, While I do not think this will mean a return to the fire and fury days of 2017 when armed conflict was possible, as you both referred to, we have learned a number of lessons from Hanoi going forward. First, the North Korean position at Hanoi reflects little change in their negotiating strategy, despite holding the audience of the U.S. president. President Trump essentially tested the critical thesis that had hung over previous negotiations for decades, that is... The North Koreans will not truly show their hand and take big steps unless we talk directly to the leadership. Yet what we found in Hanoi was that North Korea stuck stubbornly to its same negotiating strategy, which is to negotiate its past when it comes to its nuclear programs, but not its present nor its future. What this means is that Pyongyang is only willing to put on the table elements of its program that it no longer really needs such as an old nuclear test site or an old plutonium reactor, while preserving their present and their future, their nuclear weapons arsenal, fissile material, missile bases, uranium program. Um, In exchange, however, they want real concessions from their negotiating counterpart like sanctions relief. Second, I believe that both sides walked away from the summit with the core belief that pressure works. In the case of the United States, the fact that the North Korean leader prioritized sanctions relief above all other concessions, taught us that the sanctions are indeed working. Similarly, the fact that the North Koreans came to Hanoi with a bad deal in hand intimates a belief that President Trump was under pressure to take less than half a loaf. Furthermore, revelations by CSIS and other think tanks documented North Korean activity at the Sohei Satellite Launch Facility to return the site to normal operating status after initial dismantlement earlier in the summer of 2018. This again suggests the North believes more pressure is necessary to soften up the U.S. position. This does not suggest a rocket launcher nuclear test is imminent, but it does suggest that the situation could take a downward turn before a resumption of diplomacy. Third, the U.S. should be prepared for other regional partners to start lobbying us to change our position. Whenever we reach an impasse with North Korea in the diplomacy, third parties know that it is impossible to move the intransigent North Koreans. So invariably, they come to the United States to find a solution. So as unreasonable as the North is, those who want to see continued diplomatic progress, like the South Koreans and the Chinese, will invariably come to us, complain about the North's behavior, empathize with our frustrations, and then ask Washington to be more flexible. Fourth, we should expect North Korea to retrench in the aftermath of the summit. The outcome constituted a major embarrassment for the North Korean leader, and it would not surprise me if there were personnel changes as a result of the failed summit. The question is, when they reemerge, whether North Korea will cycle back to a provocation track, or whether they will look for a diplomatic path forward. Our data research at CSIS shows that when bilateral negotiations break down with the United States and North Korea over the past three decades, the likelihood of provocations happening within five months of the breakdown of negotiations is high. Fifth, human rights continues to be neglected in the administration's summit diplomacy. It is impossible for U.S. denuclearization diplomacy to succeed without integration of the human rights issue. Because of the sanctions levied by this body, there is no company or international financial institution that will enter North Korea given human rights violations in the supply chain. Thus, the president's promises of casinos and condominium on the beaches of North Korea in return for denuclearization ring hollow without beginning a real dialogue in human rights. Finally, we are left with the question of who benefits from a pause in the diplomacy. We believe that time is on our side because the continued bite of economic sanctions. But the North believes their continued production of weapons, materials, and missile designs puts added pressure on the United States. In either case, President Trump may be realizing the limits of his bromance diplomacy with North Korea. If he loses interest, then we are unlikely to see any progress for the remainder of his term in office, which will make Americans less secure, not more secure.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Cha. Uh, Ms. Magsiman.
3: Chairman Gardner, Ranking Member Markey, and members of the committee, it's an honor to be invited today to give testimony on U.S. policy towards North Korea. It's also a great honor to be sitting alongside Dr. Cha, whose extensive experience on this issue is unmatched and whose analysis I seek to inform my own. Today, after two U.S.-North Korea summits in Singapore and Hanoi, North Korea still has upwards of 60 nuclear weapons and is continuing to accumulate fissile material to make more. It retains the ballistic missile capability to threaten Hawaii, Guam, Alaska, the West Coast, and good portions of the continental United States. And North Korea also retains a conventional capacity to put Seoul and South Korea at unacceptable risk. In some, the threat has not changed. I wanna be clear at the outset that I am a strong supporter of diplomacy with North Korea, but I also want to be clear that I think the administration is doing it wrong. And while better than the days of fire and fury, this problem is not gonna be solved through reality TV episodes. It's going to take deliberate, integrated, and coherent interagency effort in close partnership with the international community. In the case of the Hanoi Summit, Many of us were worried about the possibility of a bad deal. The good news is that didn't happen. The bad news is that the way forward is now deeply uncertain and full of risks. We cannot be complacent in the status quo, even if it is better than fire and fury, and we cannot keep grading the administration on a curve. The reality is that the Hanoi summit never should have happened. The president of the United States went into a room with Kim Jong-un for a second time with no firm commitments and only a rough outline of possibilities as well as maximalist illusions of a grand bargain that he alone could make. It turns out this is not real estate, it's actual rocket science. Setbacks in diplomacy are to be expected. With proper preparation, they can be managed, and even clarifying for both sides. This was the case for the Reykjavik summit between President Reagan and Gorbachev. But it's always better to underpromise and over-deliver. Unfortunately, the opposite has been the case since 2017. In my view, the U.S. team needs to get back to some first principles. First, reinforce constantly that the United States remains not just open to, but actually interested in negotiating. This will be important for both diplomacy and international sanctions enforcement. We have no way to control what North Korea does, but we do control what we say and do. Second, there should be no more summits without substance. We have now tested the theory that leader-level negotiations will deliver better results than the hard slog of substantive diplomacy. The diplomacy leading up to the JCPOA took took years of sub-cabinet and cabinet-level effort, and a comprehensive deal was achieved without summits. Third, we need a coherent interagency strategy that is supported by both the President and his national security team. The North Koreans are exploiting divisions between the President and his team. This bifurcation is creating dysfunction in our diplomacy, dysfunction in our alliance relationships, and ultimately undermining our strategy. Fourth, the president needs to stop ingratiating himself to Kim Jong-un. While developing a practical relationship with an adversary to advance your interests is often necessary, there are basic values a US president should not abandon. Finally, we need to set realistic objectives on realistic time horizons. While complete denuclearization should always be our long-term objective, we all know a unilateral surrender by Kim Jong-un and beach resorts suddenly popping up on the coast of North Korea are not in the cards anytime soon. This is a negotiation. The U.S. negotiating team needs to be prepared for multiple alternatives to its maximalist positions and to look for pathways to get meaningful concessions at an acceptable price. And yes, that means reconsidering a step-by-step approach and doing the hard work on possible interim deals. We also have a lot of work ahead of us on alliance management with both Seoul and Tokyo, including the hard but increasingly necessary work of trilateral cooperation. We need to double down on sanctions enforcement before we cast our eyes on new sanctions and develop coherence in sanctioned diplomacy. It was clear from Hanoi that sanctions relief is a key motivator to Kim Jong-un. That is our leverage. And we need to take steps to strengthen deterrence and defense with an eye towards a long game, especially in the event if diplomacy fails, and the threat continues. Finally, I believe that Congress has a tremendous role to play in our North Korea strategy. I commend the members of this committee for important oversight that you are doing, and especially your close attention to human rights. In my view, the administration should view Congress as a partner in its strategy. That's the only way we we are gonna be successful. Thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions.
0: Thank you, Ms. Maximin. Uh, And uh, I'll begin uh, with the questions. I wanted to start with legislation that uh, Senator Markey and I have uh, worked together on the gardner Market Asia Reassurance Initiative, uh, signed into law on New Year's Eve uh, this uh, past year. Uh, in, within that legislation, there's a provision that states that not later than 90 days after the date of the enactment, which will be tomorrow, um, and every 180 days thereafter uh, for the following five years, the Secretary of State or designee shall submit a report to the appropriate congressional committees that describes actions taken by... Uh, The United States to address the threats posed by and the capabilities of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Each report uh, will have a summary of ongoing efforts by the United States talking about our strategies and policies, uh, including assessments of the strengths and weaknesses of such strategies and policies, Uh, policies to achieve peaceful denuclearizations, to eliminate the threat posed by ballistic missiles, potential roadmap toward peaceful denuclearization, specific actions that DPRK would need to take for such a roadmap to become viable, Uh, a summary of U.S. strategy to increase international coordination and cooperation, Uh, the description of actions taken by the United States uh, to fully implement uh, United Nations Security Council resolutions, uh, other actions. Uh, It goes on and on. This report is due tomorrow. I've had multiple conversations with the State Department and uh, Department of Defense about this report. Uh, Dr. Chaw, Ms. Maximin, uh, are you hearing that this report is imminent? It's been published. It's just waiting to be filed tomorrow. Uh,
2: Chairman, Chairman Gardner, for, I have not. Unfortunately, I have not heard that. Um, uh, I think the um, that provision within ARIA is a very important one because it speaks to exactly the thing that Uh, Ms. Magsman was saying, which is uh, the absence of any transparency on the policy. Um, I think this body, um, as well as the American public, have given the administration a lot of rope in terms of their efforts to try to do this in a very unconventional way, uh, using backdoor diplomacy. Uh, Not a lot of um, um, transparency, not just for the Congress, but even within the interagency. There hasn't been a lot of transparency um, uh, because the president wanted to try it his own way. And so he's done that. He's done that twice. And there couldn't have been a bigger sign of failure than what happened at Hanoi. So I think it's high time that uh, there's more transparency. There's a regularization of the process, again, as Ms. Magsman said. Um, <clears throat> and um, it, it, this, is, it's, this is not just simply an issue of uh, a, a, something passed by Congress that requires administration action. This is actually something that can help their diplomacy because the North Koreans have had three agreements with the United States that have come apart because administrations have changed. And so the most credible sign to the North Koreans that something we negotiate is going to stand the test of time will be if there is congressional buy-in. So um, it, I think as, at this particular point, as there is not a clear road ahead, I think we really need to reset. Um, uh, and a big part of that is having uh, the Congress um, um, have much more insight and input into how we are thinking about this policy.
0: Ms. magsiman you hearing uh, the same thing?
3: Uh, well, I agree with, uh, I haven't heard anything about the report, unfortunately, but I do agree with Dr. Cha. The only way we're gonna be successful uh, in this strategy is if we have a unified front between the president, the executive branch, Within the interagency and the US Congress. I think, you know, looking back to my experience on Iran, you know, one of the things that made us very successful in the pressure campaign was the fact that we worked closely uh, with the US Congress on the pressure campaign, the sanction strategy around 2010. And I think that was a hugely important uh, effort. Um, and that's how the, the administration should be looking at the Congress. Should be looking at the Congress as a partner in its efforts. Uh, to what Dr. Chaw said, well,
0: I want to think in your, in your in your statements, both of you talk about the need for uh, clear diplomatic paths ahead. Uh, that that seems to be something that we are lacking right now. That provision in the Asia Reassurance Initiative gives a very clear directive to the administration to let Congress know the buy-in that you've both talked about, uh, I think, is absolutely critical. And it gives our allies in South Korea uh, a a roadmap to where we would like to head, and it certainly lays out to North Korea how we will expect them to abide by international law and, indeed, U.S. law. Um, Dr. Shaw, you mentioned in your your opening statement that North Korea has not changed uh, and uh, their strategies. But, you know, the U.S. has. Uh, and we've not gotten a single thing in return. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the ways that you're seeing the U.S. policy change toward North Korea uh, as we sit here and speak today? What has changed about U.S. policies uh, you know, and, and match that up against an unchanging North Korea determination to continue its nuclear policy? Sure.
2: Happy to. Um, so... I, there are a few things that have changed. The first is well, the first is the summit level meeting. You know, this was something that the North Koreans have wanted for decades. It was something that the United States has held back because for a variety of reasons, not just tactically, but on principle. Uh, without real, um, genuine evidence of North Korea join, rejoining the international community of nations, it just did not make sense to put the president in front of the worst dictator. Uh, the worst human rights abuser in modern history, and so we we've changed that. We've given that up. Um, <clears throat> the other thing is that we've, um, when I participated in the six-party talks, we 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 did talk about a peace regime on the Korean Peninsula, as well as liaison offices and possible normalization of relations. With North Korea. But that was always considered to be something that would become towards the end of a process, or at least while a denuclearization process was well underway. Um, And again, these were things that it looked like, at least prior to to Hanoi, uh, were being uh, willfully put on the table by the United States um, as the price for entry into the negotiations. Um, Third is that I think while every administration reserves the right because the policy is so difficult to have a degree of space when it comes to um, uh, dealing with negotiating with North Korea, <clears throat> this administration, again, used very unconventional means, uh, back channels um, that had uh, really no um, uh, adv- advising that was given either to this body or to even to members of their own ad- administration, nor allies. Um, and I think that's something that's, that's quite different. And what has remained consistent on the North Korean side is, and to me this was the most disappointing part of the Hanoi summit, was <clears throat> uh, the position that they walked in with was a position I think that was well aware to us in advance um, to the U.S. side um, and was unreasonable, and I think for many was seen as sort of an opening gambit. But the fact that they came in with the same position at the leadership level with the U.S. president, a position that you would expect them to take in a working-level meeting in the first round <laughs> was the same position they held until the meeting with the president, was was very disappointing, and it really showed a, a lack of flexibility and unwillingness, really, to to negotiate in earnest.
0: And thank you. And, and Dr. Cha, just to, to summarize, I mean, you basically have – Uh, This uh, summit that that has now been offered twice, Uh, we have this sort of normalization of uh, uh, relations with North Korea that may be uh, uh, on the table uh, now. You have uh, unconventional means with no uh, sort of advising of allies or uh, administration colleagues. Uh, You have this um, position of Kim Jong-un that has not changed uh, that we knew going in and I'll add to that list uh, we now have sanctions that are being waived by uh, the president after Treasury, by law, issues them. And it seems that we have now changed dramatically. And the, the, the one consistency is Kim Jong-un's nuclear program. I think this body ought to be growing more and more frustrated with the U.S. continuing to change our policy while Kim Jong-un sits back and continues to develop fissile material, nuclear weapons, without doing a doggone thing except to watch the United States change its negotiating position. Senator Markey. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I agree with you completely. Um, Thank you for being here. On Friday, President Trump caused confusion when he tweeted, quote, it was announced today by the U.S. Treasury that additional large-scale sanctions would be added to those already existing sanctions on North Korea. I have today ordered the withdrawal of those additional sanctions. But of course, no new sanctions had been announced. The Treasury Department announced two additional designations a day earlier, but those represented regular updates to existing sanctions. Both of you are international relations experts. You have spent your career studying the nuances of how governments achieve policy goals. How important is signaling in international relations, especially when uh, we are <clears throat> in negotiations? What are the implications of sending mixed or muddled messages? How did President Trump's tweet from Friday affect U.S. messaging? Uh, Ms. Magsiman.
3: Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, about a year ago, January 2018, I, I gave testimony before the Senate Armed Services Committee about. North Korea the same topic. And I said the most important part of our strategy has to be clear and consistent strategic messaging. (laughs) And I think uh, Friday's events uh, over the issuing of sanctions and the sort of alleged waiving of sanctions, potentially new sanctions, I think creates confusion uh, and it demonstrates to the North Koreans that there's divisions within the administration potentially on these issues, which those divisions are the ones they will explore. To, to Dr. Cha's point, when the president walked in uh, <coughs> to the Hanoi summit, they had the same position knowing that that there was uh, division within the administration, so they were gonna try to test their position with, with the president of the United States directly. So I think it's, it, it's essential that the president and his national security team be on the same page on their strategy uh, this is something that, you know, for the North Koreans, they will exploit every possible division. Uh, for our allies, it creates complete confusion over who has the ball, who is, whose view is prevailing within the administration, and I think that's really bad for our strategy. Um, you know, I think with respect to sanctions, you know, I think Treasury's actions uh, last week were completely appropriate. Uh, they were with respect to sanctions enforcement of existing sanctions. Um, and so what they were, were doing, I think, was really important as we look now in this period of uncertainty, sanctions enforcement is going to be essential uh, going forward. So I was very confused by what the president did uh, through his tweet on Friday, and I'm certain that uh, our allies and in the international community, including the, the financial community, the business community, they're all very confused about where we're going.
1: Yeah. So you know, obviously we're concerned about this, Dr. Cha, um, and it's potential signaling to Russia and China that we're not really sincere in implementing the already existing sanctions, uh, allowing for additional slippage in terms of the pressure on North Korea for them to change their behavior. Could you talk about your response to what happened last week?
2: Uh, Yes, so I think like all of us everybody was quite confused uh, by the tweet. Um, I would agree with everything Ms. Magman said. I think it reinforces the worst tendencies of the worst tendencies that have actually led us to where we are right now, which is two summits and absolutely no progress of anything. North Korea has increased its weapons stockpile uh, since the Singapore summit. Um, so, you know, the problem is that these sanctions. The North Korean leader made clear what mattered to him in Hanoi. It wasn't a peace regime. It wasn't liaison offices. <clears throat> he had his his time with the president, and the one thing he focused on was sanctions relief. So we know that that, as Ms. Magnus said, that is our leverage. That is our point of leverage. That is what they value. And for us, for the you know president then to go out and essentially undercut his own leverage in dealing with this problem, it's not doesn't make a great deal of, of sense. And again reinforces this tendency to for the North Koreans to believe that they can they, don't, they can um, abandon the working level discussions, which tend to be harder it 's a harder slog, and think they can just go for the home run or the touchdown if you will, which is with uh, with the presence of the united states i would I would add to what um, Kelly said in that not only did they believe coming to Hanoi that um, they could make a run at the president and see if they could change his position. They didn't have a fallback position. They didn't have a plan B, which made that, which meant they really believed that they could um, bypass the U.S. national security establishment and try to cut a deal uh, with the president.
1: Okay, great. Thank you. Now, uh, Ms. Maximin, let me go to you again. The U.N. panel of experts report raises concerns about a, quote, massive increase in illegal ship-to-ship transfers of petroleum products and coal. But these transfers rely on brokers like the overseas representatives of the RGB, a North Korean intelligence agency. The UN report states that one known broker for ship-to-ship transfers is an individual based in Shenyang, China. Elsewhere, the report implies that China is not closing the bank accounts of family members of North Koreans overseas representatives when those accounts are used to evade sanctions allowing North Korea to maintain its access to the global financial system. And finally, the report notes that the Chinese messaging and payment platform WeChat is, quote, the primary means of communication for ship-to-ship transfers in the East China Sea and the Yellow Sea. What should the Trump administration do to tighten China's sanctions enforcement? <clears throat> Is it likely the Chinese government has conducted appropriate outreach to banks and payment platforms to encourage proactive compliance with global sanctions?
3: Thank you, Senator. Uh, it's a very important question. I, I think you know sanctions enforcement has to be at the top of the priority list right now in this period of time. And I think the administration uh, has done a pretty good job of putting in place uh, very important sanctions since 2016. I-, I do think that it's time for the administration to potentially dedicate some high-level, senior, ca- almost cabinet-level or sub-cabinet-level effort to this. Uh, in the case of Iran strategy, uh, we had, you know, Under Secretary of the Treasury, Stuart Levy at the time, going around the world uh, working on sanctions enforcement around the world. I think a similar effort needs to be taken now. Uh, somebody at the Treasury Department or the State Department needs to be appointed full-time in charge of sanctions enforcement on North Korea. I think that would be hugely valuable. It's not clear to me that uh, Steve Began or others have that kind of time, um, given the, all the other challenges they've got to face. So, And part of that has to be China. Uh, Part of that has to be sitting on China (laughs) all the time, every day, ensuring that the Chinese are taking action. Now, whether or not the the trade dispute currently between the president and – and Beijing uh, is in interacting or affecting any of this, it's not clear to me. I think the president needs to make cl- uh, clear to President Xi Jinping that this is an essential priority for the United States, that sanctions enforcement is gonna be, for North Korea is going to be the top of the list, regardless of whatever negotiations are going on on the bilateral trade issues. I think it's important that the president reinforce that directly with Beijing. Beautiful. Dr. Char.
2: I think the... Um, this point about reinforcing this message to China is very important at the highest levels. I mean, I mean, not just, but consistently across all levels of the U.S. government. So, even as uh, uh, members of Congress travel, it's an important message to send because you know the, the Chinese used to make the argument when we called for them to put more sanctions on on things like that as remote as this, ship-to-ship transfers, payments through WeChat, the, the argument they used to make is that, you know, we're a big country, it's very <coughs> decentralized, we can't do all this stuff. Um, but the reality is when they want to, they can. And they did in the last quarter of 2017 um, uh, put very serious sanctions on North Korea. So um, they, they have the capacity to do this if the, if the will is there, and the will will, the will, will not be there. Um, if the United States is not uh, on all channels sending this very important message. The other thing I'd like to add is that when we talk about increasing sanctioning on North Korea, um, this is not increasing sanctioning because the Hanoi Summit failed. It's increasing sanctioning because they are violating current sanctions so that there's a question of enforcement of existing sanctions, existing law, and also because they continue to proliferate. They continue to develop weapons and, uh, and fissile material, and they continue to violate human rights. So That's what do, you make, the what do, you, what do you
1: make of the fact that the administration has only designated 34 individuals, entities, and vessels in connection uh, to North Korea, even as the latest UN panel of experts report details serious shortcomings in sanctions enforcement? Uh, And through this this lack of action, the Trump administration has boxed itself in. The world has the impression that simply adding entities to our North Korea sanctions list is a serious escalation instead of just routine maintenance, which is really what it is. What message is that sending?
3: Well, I I think it sends a message that the administration needs to Uh, update uh, its messaging at the highest levels about what we're actually trying to do. I think it's very important that we be clear and consistent with the international community about sanctions enforcement so it doesn't become an escalatory situation, as you point out, Senator.
1: Beautiful.
2: The the thing I would add is that, I mean, what the uh, the panel of experts um, did highlight is that North Korean efforts to circumvent sanctions are robust, and they're effective. They're effective at doing this. So... Um, So part of this is not the administration's fault in the sense that North Korea is finding workarounds, but once we know, identify what those workarounds are, we have to go after them uh, right away. And so the statement, as you described, Senator, that the president made on, on, uh, was it Friday? I mean, that just completely undercuts the whole philosophy behind why we pursue sanctions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you, Senator Markey, uh, and I have, uh, want to correct uh, one of my comments earlier. Uh, it's good news for the State Department; they actually have a few more days. Tomorrow's not March 31st, so they have a few more days to get this report done. Uh, in a letter that Senator Markey and I sent to Secretary Pompeo uh, and Secretary Mnuchin, uh, March 14th, and I asked, and I, I'm going to submit this for the record if there's uh, no objection. Uh, but in this letter, we remind the administration about the March 31st report that would lay out the roadmap, uh, diplomatic um, security, uh, strategic roadmap as it relates to North Korea. We reminded them of this deadline in law that the president signed on the 31st of December. And we also talked about this pace of sanctions. Uh, And here's uh, here's what we said. Unfortunately, it appears that the pace of U.S. sanctions designations with regard to North Korea has slowed considerably. According to research conducted by the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, since March 31st, 2017, the Trump administration sanctioned 182 persons and entities for North Korea sanctions violations. However, after February 23rd, 2018, the Treasury Department has issued only 26 new designations, despite ample evidence of illicit behavior from Pyongyang and its enablers. So you have this slowing of pace. The law requires, the North Korea uh, Sanctions uh, Enhancement Act requires that the U.S. Uh, investigate and designate those who violate uh, our sanctions if they don 't, then it requires a waiver from the administration, so I think we 've only received uh, one or two waivers, uh, perhaps a few more, but clearly, the Treasury knows of more violators. so are they going to move forward with this or not? Is the administration going to continue to wa- offer waivers, and I assume that we should be expecting waivers then for the sanctions that apparently the President waived uh, on Friday. Uh, I, I assume that has to follow the law because the law says that they should be sanctioned, and that's what Treasury was doing. So I guess we anticipate those waivers. Um, th- there seems to be this, this willingness to give up sanctions, uh, but yet, going back to the question I asked before, nothing in return. So on Friday, uh, the sanctions were lifted or waived or waived off, Uh, and there was nothing that we got in return. I mean, Ms. Magsiman, are are you aware of anything the United States got in return or for the waivers of those sanctions?
3: Uh, Certainly not. Uh,
0: Dr. Shaw?
2: No, No, I mean, the one thing that was reported in the press was that the North Koreans had left the... Inter-Korean liaison office, and then they came back, but
0: there's no way that one could say one caused the other. Well, and even if it did, Dr. Cha, I think the concern is that their bad behavior gets rewarded. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and so they walk away of their own volition, we give them something in return, and they come back to something they walked away from. Right, which they would consider a major success. Uh, my, my, my growing concern is that we had a successful maximum pressure doctrine that was put in place, and that it was beginning to work. My concern is that we are slow walking back into strategic patience. And I hope, uh, I hope we can get clarity with this report that's due on March 31st. We'll have an opportunity to hear from General Stilwell uh, tomorrow at a confirmation hearing. Uh, we're gonna talk about this, but my concern is that the administration is slow walking back into strategic patience. Now, the strategic, strategic patience led to uh, the continued production. I guess it's the status quo. I guess maybe it's no different than we're in today, um, right now. Uh, If the United States simply gives up on this progress or just decides to live with a nuclearized North Korea, uh, the risk of that is unacceptable. Uh, And the proliferation risk, could you explain the proliferation risks if we don't change course right now with North Korea? Sure. I mean, it's multidimensional.
2: As you know well, uh, Chairman, the, the, the one most Concerning thing, of course, is the growth of the homeland security threat as North Korea perfects long-range delivery systems um, to put the, um, to mate with their uh, nuclear warheads. The other is the concern about sale. Uh, uh, North Korea, unfortunately, has sold every weapon system it has ever developed, from small arms to ballistic missiles. Um, uh, um, the Gowri missile, the Shahab missile, are all first-generation North Korean ballistic missiles. Um, as some of our research has shown, North Korea has at least 20 undeclared missile bases that are the part, of the mainstay of their short, medium, and long-range ballistic missile program. None of which appear to be part of any sort of ongoing negotiation. So you're absolutely right. There is, if we fall back into a, uh, um, a sort of patient, strategic patience, if you will. Uh, policy. This will do nothing to stem
0: the proliferation threat. In September, Ms. Magsman, I don't know if you wanted to comment on that or 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 not.
3: I, I will say, I think I do think that we have to keep the door open to diplomacy. I think that's the only way this is, this threat is ever going to be addressed in the end game. I do not think that that sanctions alone are, are going to produce the result that we want. So I do think it's important that the administration continue to try to pursue diplomacy uh, with North Korea. I think the most important thing that we could be doing right now is alliance management. I think we are entering a period that's going to be a little bit topsy-turvy in this regard with respect to the strategic imperatives that Seoul has, where Tokyo is and their concerns, the fact that trilateral cooperation has pretty much collapsed Uh, and the the relationship between South Korea and Japan is falling apart. I think there's got to be a a sort of a a maintenance level of diplomacy among our our allies right now uh, to ensure that we're all working on the same sheet of music, music, that we all anticipate what the North Koreans are going to throw our way, what the Chinese are going to throw our way, and the Russians are going to throw our way, and that we work collectively to address it in this period of time. And,
0: And something like the report that's required by law due March 31st, um, would help us meet those uh, sort of concerns you have correct
3: absolutely I, I think it's really important that the the administration <clears> lay out its strategy and work in partnership with Congress uh, to effectuate it
0: in September of last year, uh, Secretary Pompeo made the following statement um, this will mark the talking about uh, some of the conversations they 've had with Steve uh, Began and the invitation uh, of uh, various North Korean officials to Uh, the negotiations. This will mark the beginning of negotiations to transform U.S. DPRK relations through the process of rapid denuclearization of North Korea to be completed by January 2021 as committed by Chairman Kim and to construct a lasting and stable peace regime on the Korean Peninsula, Uh, Secretary Pompeo said. uh, Are we on the same time frame, uh, rapid denuclearization by 2021, Dr. Cha? certainly
2: doesn't appear to be the case, uh, Chairman. The the one thing, I, if I could add to the point about sanctions, the North Korea policy, sanctions policy enforcement act, um, the provision ARIA, is that this also has international support. I mean, the EU, if the EU three other countries, around, you know, with the exception of China maybe and Russia, this uh, sanctions policy has had universal support among all UN member states, backed by 11 UN Security Council resolutions in existing. in in addition to existing um, Congressional
0: legislation. Thank you. Uh, Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much.
1: Um, The UN Panel on Experts' report on North Korea tells the story of one U.S. effort to stop North Korea from importing refined petroleum products above the UN's cap of 500,000 barrels. In July of 2018, the United States notified the UN's North Korea sanctions committee that the Kim regime had hit its import limit back in May of that year, in part by relying on illicit ship-to-ship transfers. Yet Russia repeatedly objected to the numbers and evidence collected by the United States. In September, despite U.S. documentation of 148 deliveries of refined petroleum products to North Korea, along with images and explanations of the process by which transfers occurred, Russia asked to put the US request, quote, on hold. Question, in in Russia, they seem to be in denial. And so is Russia protecting the Kim regime because Russia profits from continued sales of refined petroleum products because Russia has an interest? In undermining the effectiveness of u s sanctions on North Korea are because Russia has a broader interest in undermining all u s sanctions dr. cha um,
2: Yes, I saw those um, uh, th- that data as well, and it was very it was very concerning um, the I think the the issue with Russia is I do agree that they uh, see interest in and of itself in undermining broader Uh, U.S. policy efforts uh, on the Korean Peninsula and in Asia. When it comes to North Korea in particular, I have found over the past decades that uh, Russian policy is very self-serving. So it could simply be for the fact that they are making money off these ship-to-ship transfers that they would would do it that way. It was the same reason that they were willing to offer North Korea civilian nuclear uh, reactors and technology when the international community was against providing those things to them, um, and was trying to convince them of alternative energy sources if they were to give up their plutonium reactors. So there's a very self-serving nature to their policy on the Korean Peninsula, and this piece of data appears to fit with that longer-term behavioral trend.
3: I agree with Dr. Cha, and I'm very glad you raised it, Senator, because I do think there's a lot of uh, American focus on Chinese enforcement of sanctions, but... We have a similar problem on the Russia front, so I'm glad you raised it. More attention needs to be put on the Russia uh, sanctions enforcement issue, and I agree with Dr. Chaw that they generally want to make money, they want to play spoiler, and so really watching the Russia flank on sanctions enforcement is going to be very important going forward.
1: Okay, great. Now let me follow up with the next question. The State Department recently estimated that in 2018 there were, this is an unbelievable number, 100,000 North Korean citizens working as overseas laborers primarily in Russia and China. And in addition, the State Department explicitly named 35 other countries in which these workers were present. Another report from the firm C4ADS noted that despite mandatory sanctions authority targeting employers of North Korean workers, relatively few employers have faced any action at all. Question one. North Korean overseas laborers work under oppressive conditions, and the Kim regime uses them to generate hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue every year. Why do you think we haven't taken more action uh, in the Trump administration against companies that continue to employ North Korean workers, and what should the administration be doing instead? Uh, Ms. Maximin.
3: I, I don't know why the administration hasn't taken more action. I do think this goes back to an earlier point I made. I think there has to be somebody in charge of sanctions enforcement across the interagency, and that person needs to be high level. They need to be going out doing the <coughs> capital to capital. Uh, engagement on sanctions enforcement that we did during uh, the previous administration and, and the, also in the Bush administration on Iran. I think this there needs to be someone who's given this ball <laughs> to run with, um, whether it's on Russia shipping or, or coal or you know uh, overseas workers. Somebody needs to be put in charge of this okay, uh, doc- full-time,
1: sir. Right, thank you. Um, Dr. Cha, according to press reports this morning, Russia and China recently told the UN that they sent home over half of the workers in their countries during 2018. How credible do you think that self-reporting is? And do you expect China and Russia and the other countries to meet the UN deadline of December 22nd of this year to repatriate to North Korea all North Koreans earning income in their countries?
2: The, they are, As you said, Senator, they are obligated by the UN to do this. Um, self-reporting uh, I well, I would believe the self-reporting, like I believe China's self-reporting on their economic trade with North Korea, mm-hmm. um, which is I don't believe it. I don't believe it very much. Um, um, yes, the 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 solution here, at least from a U.S. policy perspective, is secondary sanctioning of the companies that we know that are doing this, regardless of what country they're in. The other is if um, governments uh, claim ignorance, then we should be providing them information on the companies that are undertaking this activity so that they could then be um, stopped. And if they're not stopped, then we sanction them. Good. Beautiful. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Young. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And
4: I want to thank you, Dr. Cha and Ms. Mengsa min uh, for being here today, offering your thoughtful testimony. Um, this is really for both of you. South Korean President Moon has said that Seoul will work to get nuclear negotiations back on track in the wake of uh, the Hanoi summit. Moon uh, has been a critical player uh, in the relationship between South Korea and North Korea uh, and the United States. Do you both believe that President Moon desires to see a unified Korean peninsula? And If so, how should the idea of a unified Korean peninsula inform next steps in the wake of the summit? Dr. Um, Cha.
2: So I think the South Korean president is committed to an engagement strategy with North Korea. Uh, The tip of the sword of that is really economic engagement, using economic incentives to bring to bring North Korea to the table. I think the ultimate goal of that is not necessarily unification. Uh, but it is to try to create at least a one country, two systems approach for the time being. Um, The current South Korean president hails from the progressive end of the political spectrum, and there's a long um, line of thinking in the progressive end of of, of Korean politics that the goal is not unification, but it is to try to create this one country, two systems where there's an economic marriage between the two sides, but they would allow the North Koreans to maintain sort of a separate political entity, at least at least for the, for at least for the foreseeable future. And the it's reason they argue that sort of a confederacy, that, I mean, yeah, it, a confederacy of sorts that okay. is sort of a non-conflictual political solution. There are lots yes. of human rights issues that come up with something like that, but I think that's what they're they're aiming towards. And then to your question of of, of incentives, I, I, I don't think now is the right time for the, um, the, the South Korean government to, pr- to be providing incentives to, to North Korea. It would again undercut uh, the overall strategy that is being trying, that we are trying to prosecute along with our allies.
4: Ms. Meng uh,
3: I agree with Dr. Cha. I do think that um, we can't have a North Korea strategy without Seoul, however. So I think right now it's... <laughs> it's gotta have Seoul. Huh? It's gotta have Seoul. It's gotta have Seoul of all sorts. Um, so I do think uh, it's really important for the United States and uh, the administration to sit down with South Korea right now um, and anticipate some of the ways that North Korea is going to seek to divide uh, the United States from, from South Korea, and there are going to be stress tests along the way. I think we saw it over the weekend with the the North Koreans pulling their folks out of the, the Kaesan, uh complex and sending them back in. I think these are the kinds of maneuvers that the North Koreans are going to pursue, and while you know, reunification may not be Seoul's objective, we have to remember that uh, Kim Jong Un does have that objective of a reunified Korea. And so I think we need to be vigilant uh, with respect to defense of South Korea as well in terms of deterrence.
4: So can you speak to China's um, fears, apprehension, or anxiety related to a unified democratic South Korea that is friendly to the United States? Dr. Shaw.
2: Um, so I think it's exactly for that reason that China opposes a unification of the Korean Peninsula. If there were ever a unification, the only foreseeable way in which that could happen would be, as you described, uh, Senator, a democratic, free um, ally of the United States that would then be directly on China's border. Um, and, and do they
4: fear that more than an, a nuclear armed North Korea, maybe? Oh, I,
2: I, I think so. Okay. I think they do, yes.
3: Yeah, I actually, I, I agree, and I also think that Beijing uh, breathed a sigh of relief after Hanoi. I think one of their nightmares was potential actual progress in the relationship, and so right. I think they are they are currently very pleased with the status quo. Um,
4: Dr. Chan, your testimony, you state that human rights continue to be neglected in the administration summit policy with North Korea. You continued by stating that it is impossible for U.S denuclearization diplomacy to succeed without integration of the human rights issue. I am deeply concerned about the horrific human rights abuses that are ongoing in North Korea, and that it seemed to be left out of any conversation at the summit. What actions do you propose that this body, or more broadly, the international community take to confront this issue?
2: Um, I mean, there are a number of things. One of the most important things is um, to call on the administration to appoint a senior envoy for North Korean human rights abuses as mandated by this body. Uh, I think their their current thinking is they have folded this position into into, um, an assistant secretary level or acting assistant secretary level position. But the reality is that you need a senior envoy out there who will... Um, be a voice for this issue because there's no one else in the world who will be a voice for North Korean human rights aside from uh, this senior envoy. And this senior envoy, in conjunction with our um, ambassador to the UN, which is also a vacant position, is critical to moving the Security Council um, in their vote on discussing the North Korean human rights issue on the, on the agenda. So you know there are a number of things that can be done that are very important to bring this back to the level, to, to the visibility that this issue had only a couple of years ago in the aftermath of the UN Commission of Inquiry on Human Rights and the passage of the North Korean Human Rights Act.
4: Thank you. Can I make an observation? This, uh, both you and Ms. Mengsaman are in agreement that a senior envoy, a special envoy, should be appointed for various purposes uh, to be a focal point and provide leadership through the interagency on some of these different issues. We've done this in, in so many different areas over the years. There are dozens of special envoys. This is something we addressed over the last couple of years. It seems to suggest that the State Department's structure is flawed. This is a whole other hearing and so forth, but just an observation. It was something uh, uh, former Chairman Corker and I would would discuss quite a bit. If you have the functional personnel and the geographic personnel not accomplishing these jobs optimally, and the workaround, Administration after administration, Republican and Democrat alike, is to always appoint special envoys. That seems um, that seems to me incongruous. You don't have private entities uh, uh, frequently creating these these czars internally. Um, their organizations work, and and so um, just for anybody, you know, for the 43 individuals who might be watching this subcommittee hearing right uh, now. um, um, And um, just I I think as an issue of sort of like organizational management, it's interesting. I don't doubt uh, uh, or or acknowledge that in some cases, special envoys, maybe this case, it's entirely appropriate because of the gravity of the situation. Um, But uh, it does seem to be like a very consistent fallback for the State Department in particular, and it seems to suggest some organizational failings so um, if you have any kind of general thoughts, great, but uh, we don't have to spend a long time on it here so yeah,
3: yeah. well, I think it's a very it 's a very good question. I mean I do think that there are some challenges that require just kind of a high level amount of attention and focus that an assistant secretary who has a, a broad scope, trust me, I, I have this from experience, has such a broad scope of responsibilities, it's very hard for them to get on the road and go to Beijing and Moscow and Tokyo and Seoul and just spend their entire time on North Korea. So I do think there's some aspect to that. But also, I think the other option is empowering, appointing, nominating, you know, getting confirmed, and empowering assistant secretaries to do that work. And in that case, we've had some failings um, in the last couple of years. We
4: completely have. We've had failings to, to nominate, and then we've had extended delays in confirmation, and that's so that's kind of like a bipartisan affliction, and we need to solve it ASAP. So thank you so much for being here.
0: Thank you, Senator Young. And uh, just uh, kind of going over a couple of the, the, the questions and the comments you have made uh, in light of leverage that the U.S. has on sanctions, in light of continued diplomacy, in light of uh, the offer that Kim Jong-un made at the Hanoi summit um, in light of the president's decision to waive off the sanctions that Treasury called last for last week. If you're Kim Jong-un today, uh, do, you, do you have a new offer that you're willing to make to the United States? Uh, or are you just going to stick with what you're offering because the U.S. position continues to change?
2: Well, if we continue to do what we did on Friday, and I'm Kim Jong-un, I'm just going to sit tight have a beer and wait, <laughs> yeah, yeah. wait to see what we're, we're going to do. We're, that you know we end up negotiating with ourselves in these sorts of down periods of the diplomacy. And you know the president took a very big step in that direction on Friday.
0: Yeah, and and, and again, that's my concern. I mean, we've given nothing to Kim Jong Un to have him change his mind, to change his offer, to change his position. We consistently have been at least now consistently changing our position and not uh, not sticking with maximum pressure, which is something that I think was effective and helped bring uh, people to the table in negotiations. That being said, do we need new uh, sanctions authority to cover what Senator Markey was talking about on the, the petroleum side of things, things like the LEAD Act? Senator Markey and I have the, the LEAD Act. Would you uh, Do you think the passage of something like a, a LEAD Act type initiative Furthering sanctions, creating more of an economic embargo on North Korea would put us back into a position where it could change the the negotiating posture of Kim Jong-un? Well, I think it was made
2: very clear at the summit by the leader himself what he values the most in our strategy, and that has been the economic pressure. Because we have to remember that the North Korean leader is not term-limited Um, And he's planning on ruling not for five years, but for 50 years. And it's very clear that uh, the pressure that has been brought to bear thus far... Um, in no small part because of this body, uh, albeit imperfect, has really made an impact. And that is why that is the one, he didn't look, he didn't ask for peace on the Korean Peninsula. He did not ask for normal political relations with the United States. He asked for one thing, and that was sanctions relief because he can't rule like this for 50 years. So um, this is the leverage point, as Ms. Magsman said, and uh, things like the LEAD Act are a very important step um, forward.
0: Ms. Mengsman, on the bilateral management, uh, alliance management, excuse me, in the bilateral and trilateral uh, relationships at stake here, what more should we be uh, doing in that bilateral management and also uh, to make it even more clear about the importance of Japan, South Korea, and the United States being a part of the solution?
3: Um, I think it's hugely important uh, right now. I actually think at the trilateral level, um, we need to see some leadership from the President of the United States on this issue. I think he needs to make clear Uh, to both Seoul and Tokyo, this is a priority for him. I think in this period uh, of whatever lull we're calling this in diplomacy, I think the most important thing we could demonstrate to the North Koreans is more unity among uh, the three capitals. And I think some sort of show of political unity is gonna be essential in this period of time, but that's gonna require the leadership of the president of the United States. It's not going to come from uh, the minister level or the secretary of state level. This has to be pushed at the highest level. We We experienced that during the Obama administration when President Obama really had to push uh, at his level, on trilateral cooperation. So I think that's uh, the way to go at this stage.
0: Thank you. And Congress, of course, has uh, has introduced uh, language that would further bolster the trilateral uh, relationship and cooperation and the importance of, of uh, Japan, United States, and South Korea coming together on this. Uh, a, a question I wanted to ask, as you talked about the dismantlement of the satellite facility, Dr. Um uh, North Korea has willingly volunteered that they would dismantle various components of uh, from time to time, uh, but then they always seem to be able to put them back together uh, so complete dismantlement doesn't ever seem to actually be achieved because if you can put it back together, you must not have taken it apart uh, in a way that it couldn't be put back together. So as we look at, at, at sort of the concrete, um, concrete actions that we need for complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization, what are some, some outcomes that we could get from North Korea that would represent those concrete actions that might actually justify uh, further opportunities for negotiations and diplomacy? Um, so it's a great uh, question,
2: Chairman. I think, um, yeah, the, the way the dismantlement and then reassembly of the SOHE satellite launch facility demonstrated clearly how North Korea can reverse whatever actions that it's taken. <clears throat> I think um, that was an important lesson for us to learn. Uh, and one of the things that we have to focus on is not just focusing on um, token dismantlement uh, but not to get too technical on language but we have to focus on disablement actual activity salting the fields so salting it. the fields putting sand in the gears things that actually create um, a disablement platform from which that you can then dismantle what north korea has become expert is doing is doing exactly what they did at sohey which is to take some some token steps uh, but then easily ones that they can reverse to send a political signal in few, full view of commercial satellites, so that they can signal to us that they are they are taking a step backwards again. So you know, going forward, if we ever get back into a negotiation with them, it is very important uh, for for uh, our administration to understand that steps like that don't really aren't really credible uh,
0: dismantlement steps. So actual disablement would be a concrete step of. Yeah, uh, the, the the important uh, facilities, uh, Ms. Magsman
3: Yeah, I do think that. Um, while I wouldn't put new the deals. Same I'm
0: sorry. Yeah, please.
3: <laughs> well, I wouldn't put new, new deals on the table right now. I do think that the administration does need to do some internal planning work around what interim deals could be acceptable to them. Um, and I think part of that is what what Dr. Chao uh, addressed in terms of that kind of steps. But also, you know, even freezing of enrichment and reprocessing uh, at various facilities. These can be. Uh, things that we um, look for in an interim deal in exchange for very limited uh, and reversible sanctions relief with potential snapback, for example. I think, you know, I looked back at, you know, pr- you know there's a lot of debate about the Iran nuclear deal, but in 2013, the Joint Plan of Action um, was successful and did show that you could pursue an interim deal um, and still – uh, maintain sanctions leverage to get a final deal. So I, th- I do think that the administration does need to do some internal planning about what would be acceptable to them, wh- where our red lines are, what we think would be a meaningful step, and have that prepared in the event that diplomacy reemerges. And,
0: and that kind of a roadmap or plan was something that you could cover in a March 31st report that is due by law. Is that correct?
3: Uh, potentially, although I'm not sure I would publicize everything in my plan. But uh, but <laughs> but, there is an but certainly they could they could they could, they they could certainly like um, brief the Congress about what their plans are.
0: Well, thank you for that, uh, Dr. Chaw, Ms. Magsman, Is there any further comment? Final comments you'd like to make? I
2: want to add to what Kelly said about why um, the, the support, sort of report that you are acquiring March thirty first becomes important because you know in order to and you all know this well. In order to write a report like that, you have to have an interagency process where they agree on choices that they're going to they're going to make. So, are we going to if we get disablement then talk about temporary suspension of sanctions uh, that can be snap Or are we going to instead coordinate with the South Koreans to say, and then you can provide some assistance? I mean, these are choices in policy that have to be made far in advance of a negotiation. And, you know, a document like this forces the administration to sit down and work through what are the choices that they want to make in terms of a strategy going forward.
0: Ms. Maximan, final comments?
3: I I completely agree. It is a forcing function. Um, And the final comment is thank you again, uh, Chairman, for this committee's leadership on this issue and the oversight of the North Korea challenge. It's hugely important. Thank you. Well, thank
0: you very much for your time and testimony. Thank you both uh, for this uh, great opportunity and for your responses, uh, for the information of all the members who are here. Uh, the record will remain open until the close of business Thursday, including for members to submit questions for the record. We just ask that you provide a timely response to those, uh, to those questions. They will be made uh, a part of the record. And so with the thanks of this committee, uh, thank you very much. Uh, this hearing is now adjourned.